Welcome to Reputation Town. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Reputation Town podcast. This is Warren Weeks, and I'm joined, as always, by John Paranak. John, what's happening in your world? Hey, Warren. It's uh, it's good. Just came off a uh, trivia game with some of my colleagues, learning more about them, all the things that, that their irrational fears and and you know their first job, that kind of stuff. It's fun. Team building stuff. Okay, no names, but what was the most awkward thing you found out today about somebody? Uh, somebody is, uh, for whatever reason, afraid of the food that collects in, at the bottom of your sink or whatever. Um, oh. My first thought was, how often are you cleaning your sink? That is super gross, that stuff, though. Yeah, that is gross. That is gross. How about you? What's going on? There could be worse things. Not too much. I'm enjoying, uh, there's a couple week lull that I'm having in the summer right now. Tons of media training sessions in the beginning of the year. The fall's looking like it's going to be bonkers as well, but I'm really enjoying this. So catching up on some social media, doing some reading. It's been uh, actually quite nice. So I think that's going to be over as of next week, though. That's great. Actually, I'm reading a cool book. Um, it's being made. It was made into a movie that's coming out this fall. It's called, called Killers of the Flower Moon. I kind of hmm. recommend it. It's kind of cool. What's it it's about? Got, uh, like it's a Leonardo DiCaprio is in the movie. What's the the basic plot? So, um, sort of follows the story of um, a tribe of uh, First Nation Americans uh, in Oklahoma that had bought land that everyone thought was worthless, ended up being uh, full of oil, and uh, they all became super rich. Um, and uh, when that happened. Uh, won't wreck the story for people, but basically a conspiracy um, sort of uh, emerged where one by one these these um, rich and Native Americans were being murdered, um, and their uh, their share of their uh, oil revenues um, purloined by someone. I saw the trailer so, for that. Now that you mention it, it looks really good. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a good story. So we have a whole bunch of stuff to talk about today. PR crisis, reputational stories, some LinkedIn content. Before we jump into that, though, in the world of hockey, we talk about that sometimes on this show, and hockey season's coming up upon us. We're both Leafs fans. Austin Matthews has just signed a deal that makes him officially, and I don't know if this is like inflation adjusted, but basically he's the highest paid player in NHL history. And when you think of names like Gordie Howe, Bobby Orr, Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux. This is kind of sad, but this is the state that we're in today. $13.25 million per year for four years. What are your thoughts? My thoughts are, what kind of negotiation is it where you just pay the highest price because you can't pay <laughs> that's the highest salary anyone can earn <laughs> per year in the league? Shrewd negotiators. Uh, and how long it took how long, how many months to get to paying full price? Quite a while. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but, you know, it's one of those things where you think they would have, like, left five bucks on the table to spread around for other people. The thing that bothers me about it is there's a couple things. And again, diehard fan, love the Leafs, would love to see them do well. Many, many, many years of futility. That amount of cash, couldn't you... We've seen better players, in my opinion, anyway, take less money to to help the rest of the team get some better talent around them. So you can actually maybe win something at the end of the year, as opposed to just having the largest check. 
And that's going to be the new benchmark now. So, you know, when Connor McDavid and all these other players come up, but this is a guy who, and not to take anything away because during the regular season, his goal production is up there with the best of them in history. But when it comes to the playoffs, it's just like a flat line on one of those machines at the hospital. And it doesn't seem to have that next gear that you're supposed to have in the playoffs. And for $13.25 million a year, I'm hoping that we see that gear this year. Let's hope. I Let's hope. I, I have no hope it left at, at this point. <laughs> so that's our hockey chat for the day. The first thing that I wanted to bring up, and I'd love to get your your thoughts on this, because I don't even know where this kind of fits in, but I just I, I had this bookmarked as something I wanted to chat about through the lens of reputation and career and legacy. And it's specifically about a guitar player named Buddy Guy. Many people will be aware of this name or familiar with him. 87 years old, blues legend. And I saw online that he's currently going around and doing some concerts. And I tried to look at tickets. I think he's already been through Toronto and it was a sellout. But I'm looking at these. I go to his website, buddyguy.net, and I invite anyone to do this. Um, I, I hope to be alive at, at 87, never mind working at this pace. And I just want to read out just a selection of his concert dates. So this is the the Buddy Guy Damn Right Farewell Tour. Love the name of it. And... Here are some of the dates. September 2nd, 6th, 7th, 8th, 11th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, 23rd, 28th, 29th, 30th. We get into October. 1st, 3rd, 4th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 10th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 17th, 20th. And it goes on and on and on and on. All in different cities, different concerts. And I we were chatting before we even got started that I think that would be a, a grind of a schedule for anyone, even at our age, in our 50s. Or even someone in their 30s to be doing that many concert dates. And it made me think in kind of a bigger picture about how the the building of a reputation, the building of a legacy. Because like to me, that's and I don't know this guy, but that's to me, that's why I think he's doing this right now. This is not for the ticket sales and it's not for the financial benefit, but it's just I'm here. We get one life. He's kind of running out of runway on his. And again, I hope he has another 10 years in him to keep playing but there's something about me that just loves that. And I kind of put it against a lot of the social media or LinkedIn posts you'll see about people advocating for the four-day work week or better work-life balance, which these are not bad things, but it's hard to build a career or a legacy that people are going to be talking about years from now or that's going to build that kind of fan base when you're working four days a week. So uh, before I get myself in any further trouble, <laughs> I'd like to kick it over <laughs> to you get your, get your thoughts on that. Well, I think the analogy, and you and I were talking a bit about this with uh, reputations, is the idea that like none of them get made overnight, and they're often made. I think I'm going to always say always made by um, consistently doing little things to reinforce the the brand that you're trying to create for yourself or the reputation you're trying trying to create for yourself, and you just keep doing the reps over and over and over again, little by little. It accrues into what you're you're working towards whether whether it's you know um being known to be an expert in a certain field um building a business growing a business in a certain space kind of all comes down to the same thing it's not there's no giant sweeping victories it's it's a lot of little little pushing the rock ahead one little by little that that gets you there that's and my it, view anyway. and it's not sexy right like most no. people, and I just, I went to his website just by a fluke and I then seeing those dates and seeing his age kind of just knocked me back because most times you'll see an artist or someone that you like, they'll come to town, you get tickets, you go to their concert, you see one concert. And I assume that they're doing other dates, 
but the the pace of this and there's another guy that it, that it brought to mind another guitarist Tommy Emmanuel I don't know if you're familiar with this guy he's no, not. he's a little younger he's 68 or 67 so he's a child compared to Buddy Guy <laughs> but um, Australian guitar player one of the best kind of finger picking guitarists in the world and certain styles not not everybody's thing but just amazing at what he does and I go and I look at his tour dates and it's very very similar almost every night different cities and you know my my advice to anybody who's trying to build a career or, or have that legacy or, or just become one of the best that there is in whatever line of work that it is that you do that it takes that kind of just that attitude and grinding, grinding, grinding and doing the thing. And hopefully you like the thing, right? Because I don't think you'd be able to do this if you weren't passionate or almost obsessive about playing the guitar or singing or, or again, whatever your business is. But like ultimately those are the people that you see do well over time. So I just had that bookmark. I'm not even sure if it kind of fits in, but I just, uh, I encourage people if you can see this guy while he's still around um, to to certainly do so. Like I got to see who was that the um, you know the searching for Sugar Man or finding Sugar Man. Do you remember that documentary from a couple no. years ago? Oh, you got to watch this. So there was this um, musical artist uh, Sixto Rodriguez, kind of like a Bob Dylan-y type character, but he had this big album that he created, and then he kind of just disappeared from from everywhere. No one could find out where he is. People thought that he was dead and he became this huge superstar in South Africa. Like he, like he was like, like Elvis Presley selling millions of records. But meanwhile, he's working a manual labor job in Detroit because he had no idea that any of this was taking place. And so he's just borderline homeless working construction for many, many, many decades. And then this documentary guy, this this dude with an iPhone, was set out to find him, and he finds him in Detroit. He shot this whole movie on an iPhone. He ended up winning uh, an Academy Award, like best documentary of the year. Huh. And so this guy gets kind of rediscovered. I think he was in his late sixties, and I ended up seeing him a couple of years ago at Massey Hall play, like super old and frail, but like really cool concert. And he just passed away a couple of weeks ago. And so that is that's my kind of like uh, my 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 career rant for the day, but like it's, you can't work four days a week and have people um, talking about you in, in those sort of terms. So, yeah. Yeah. So we move on to um, we're, things are getting a little, little darker. We're, we're talking a little bit about the, the fires that took place in Hawaii recently, just terrible story, seeing all of that unfold. You wanted to talk about specifically, there was one individual who was kind of in one of those meet the press moments and was answering some questions from some reporters, and he wanted to chat about his response. So we're going to play that clip, and you let me know when you want me to stop it, because I don't think you want to play the whole thing. All right, go ahead. You made the decision not to sound the sirens, which could have saved many lives. Now there are questions about your lack of experience, that you only took online courses for disaster relief, no in-the-field experience. Do you regret your decision, and have you considered handing over the reins to somebody with more experience. So the question is around sirens as it relates to the disaster, and the question is for Herman. So the news story talks about how I didn't have experience before taking on a job, and that's not true. Um, before taking on a job, I was a member of the cabinet. Uh, I was deputy director of the Department of Housing and Human Concerns, as well as the mayor's chief of staff for 11 years. And so, during that time, I was uh, reported, I oftentimes report to the uh, emergency operations centers, and I have done this on numerous, numerous occasions. Also during that time, we went through numerous trainings as well. And so um, to say that I am not 
not qualified, I think, is incorrect. Uh, in addition to that, when I applied for this position, which is, by the way, a civil service position, I uh, went through a, a very arduous process, uh, and I was vetted. I had to take a civil service exam. I was uh, interviewed by seasoned emergency managers, and they all deemed me qualified. In fact, I was selected. So uh, that's... Do you regret not sounding the sirens? I, I do not. And the reason why... And So many people said they could have been saved if they had time to escape. Had a siren gone off, they would have known that there was a crisis emerging. And as we know, so many bodies were found in the ground as the flames... Do you want him to give me the answer? I do, but I want to... Yikes. So, so a couple things. So when I first saw this clip on the news, I thought, this is, this is, you know, deep crisis response and obviously, you know, super challenging circumstances. And like you said, very tragic. But, um, I wanted to break it down for a second because it struck me as, is this is an inexperienced spokesperson and having your, that person as your crisis spokesperson is probably like a, the, definitely not what you want to have. So a couple of quick things, observations. Whenever you're faced with questions like this and you see this a lot, where um, in a crisis, the questions make it about you. And this is a huge red flag. And this guy couldn't help but try and make uh, his defense of himself the centerpiece of his response. And of course, that should be probably the last thing you're thinking about. Um, so he should have been putting the, um, the community front and center. So put all that aside for a second. When he did get further along, he did start getting into an answer about... Um, you know, uh, why he didn't sound these fire alarms, these alarms, they're not fire alarms, apparently they're sound alarms that are used for tsunamis, uh, typically, so that they warn people to get to higher ground. Um, so as he was providing his answer, he was explaining in detail how, wow, these sirens are really normally used for tsunamis. And so um, what we didn't want to do was uh, use those to drive people up the hills toward the hills where the fires were. And as a result, we were trying to focus on, and then he started using a bunch of acronyms. And what I think he was talking about was the um, wireless text messaging service they have. And this is like a, a, just another huge um, sort of failure as a spokesperson in terms of you know not, not being direct and clear about what you did do and not focus on what you didn't do. Um, so I think that was another interesting takeaway, just learning for people. And the last thing was, I think this is, uh, in his defense, one of those situations where sometimes logic doesn't prevail in a crisis. And, um, you know, there is a logic to say, well, if the if the, these sirens are normally used to warn people to get to higher ground, but that higher ground is where the fire is, maybe it isn't a good idea to sound the, sound, sound the alarms. Um, but sometimes uh, in the sort of crucible of a crisis, um, logic does not prevail. And so I think in this case, um, in that respect, he was in a no-win situation. But I have to say that um, that's sort of a, uh, a small, um, uh, you know, positive to what was otherwise a very poor uh, <laughs> uh, management job from, from an interview standpoint. But Warren, I'd be curious to your thoughts on it. Well, then didn't you say that he handed in his resignation after this? The next day he resigned, yeah. It's uh, when when he started answering, and we're looking at a, a piece of this. So I, I you know maybe there was 
you know, I want to be generous in my interpretation of this, but like when he started his answer, like I'm thinking, dude, where's the empathy? Like b- before I even get started, we want to talk about all the individuals who lost their lives, lost their possessions. Like just, you have to, you have to, but the defensiveness came. Like I actually, there's part of me that feels empathy because like, this is not the guy. This is not the guy for this. Yeah. Like, people. And there are spokespeople like this, not to play Monday morning quarterback, but I guess that's probably another name we could call the show <laughs> reputation town <laughs> or Monday morning quarterback. <laughs> there are a lot of people in roles like this who have no business being in roles like this. And, and there's a difference between textbook learning and practice learning. Like I, I, I would love to know where they threw simulations like this or cause you have to do those reps. And I feel, I feel awful that, that this, this situation took place, but um, the other, the other thing that it made me think of to trying to add something a little bit new here is in a crisis situation like this, yeah, there's two tracks, right? There's the operational response. And so you talked about, do we use the alarms? Do we not use the alarms? What's the typical standard protocol? And then you have the communications track and they're kind of parallel and, you know, not to bring up Maple Leaf Foods for like the gazillionth time on the show, but Maple Leaf Foods, the food contamination crisis in 2008, they, it's viewed so positively through the lens of history because they did the right thing from an operational standpoint. They took all the products off the shelves, cleaned it out, talked to the governments. And then at the communication side, they did all the same things at the same time. They were open and transparent in the YouTube videos and the press conferences. And so I think in this situation, you have operational errors plus communications errors, which is why it looks like such a dog's breakfast. But um, part of me actually, you know, part of me, doesn't feel bad for this guy, but part of me kind of does because I, I think he's in over his head. And you can see as he's doing the press conference, he's looking at his phone, his body language is, you know, I wouldn't want to be this guy. He's not confident. No. He's not confident. That's right, for sure. Um, so I think that's all we have on that one. Uh, we're going all over the place today, zigzagging. <laughs> we started out with guitarists, went to uh, Hawaiian fires, and now we're moving to, um, to get a little bit more bizarre, Trump and Tucker. So... Donald Trump is a, a name we haven't talked about a ton on this podcast. Very polarizing figure. There's some really weird stuff going on. Like as we're taping this, today's the mugshot day, right? This is when everyone's waiting for the Trump mugshot. I think it's coming out later tonight. That'll break the internet, I'm sure. But yesterday was the the debates, the Republican debates. And Donald Trump decided not to appear. And at the same time, I, I think the debate started at 9 p.m. last night, Eastern time. And at 8.55 he went online, did for the better part of an hour long interview with Tucker Carlson, who has been booted from Fox News and now has a show on Twitter. And I wanted to bring this up because you you're a longtime political fan, <laughs> um, strategist, whatever. You're much more uh, well versed in that in that world than me. And I would love to know your thoughts about the strategy of Trump doing this thing with Tucker Carlson on Twitter at the exact same time, like obviously trying to steal some oxygen from the debates. And if you look at the numbers, the numbers are out today. Um, I think Fox said they had 50 some million people view the debates. And the last number I just looked it up on Twitter for the Tucker Carlson is 235 million views. Now, that doesn't mean every person watched the whole thing, but those people watched at least some of it. And that's that's a quarter of a billion people. So from a strategy standpoint and from a social media and a mainstream media standpoint, what do you think we're looking at here? So it was never in his interest to do the debate because if he does the debate, he becomes the sort of center of like everyone's attacks and, you know, gets beaten up for two hours or he can counter program the debate. 
on a platform that is going to get um, atten- uh, probably just as much attention, perhaps more. He can control heavily what's on it. It's got a friendly host, and uh, it seems like a no-brainer. Like, why wouldn't you do? Why wouldn't you do that? Um, and this is, I think, just indicative of the of the communications environment generally. Is that you know you used to have to rely on you know uh, earned media and you know for the for kind of broad-based awareness. And now you don't need that. Like there are so many different platforms and so many different things you can choose, you can sponsor, you can pay for, you can, um, you know, um, uh, turn to podcasts and things and other, other types of online broadcasts and, and, and achieve your communications goals without having to go through the sort of the, the, the gauntlet of, of traditional media. So I think it just, it's only going to increase. It's just symptomatic of, of the way that the entire media world is shifting. Do you think we're seeing a turning point with this election cycle that, and given all the stuff that Elon's done with Twitter, that Twitter is going to be like in the old days, it was like Walter Cronkite or then the last election, Chris Wallace doing the the debates on CNN. Are we looking at, is this the, the beginning of Twitter as the official public square for stuff like this? And like, we're seeing the dismantling of, of kind of network or mainstream news. Uh, I think it's got, I got the, the earmarks of it, like whether or not it'll continue to evolve that way, we'll have to wait and see, but it certainly is trending that direction. I don't buy this idea that, you know, people are going to continue to flee en masse from Twitter. I think when Elon Musk bought it, there was, it became a popular, um, uh, targeted criticism for, for mainstream media. But, um, the reality is, is that. Um, as he sort of slowly turns the company around and evolves it into this new broader platform, the everything app, um, where you have discourse, you have broadcasts and shows and radio conversations and, you know, group conversations, all these sorts of things are happening there. Mm. Um, it will increasingly become, I think, a bigger part of the conversation, uh, especially because if you can target your audience, why wouldn't you, right? Mm. And then you can motivate them to get out, especially in politics get out the vote is so important and they're in the middle of a, you know, sort of not in the middle, they're starting the primary um, phase of the 2024 election and, and getting people behind their candidate and ultimately out to vote in each of the States is going to be the thing they do. So it's, it's a kind of platform that can help them do that. Isn't it funny too, that a lot of people who publicly said, no, I'm leaving Twitter, I'm never coming back are like pretty active on Twitter still. They're back. They're back. And, And the whole like, flirtation with uh threads uh threads was just that it was just you know it's it'll wither away it's it's not going to become a true competitive competing platform you never Um, hear about it nothing no and i I haven't i refuse to sign up i don't even want to have the little thread thing under my instagram like so (laughs) um okay another crazy turn to the crazy plain lady and i use the word in quotes crazy plain lady because that's kind of how she referred to herself but i think Unless you've been living under a rock, everybody knows about this story, but we'll play a quick clip and uh, trigger warning. If you have kids in the car with you while you're listening, you might want to put their earmuffs on for a couple seconds. I'm telling you, I'm getting the fuck off, and there's a reason why I'm getting the fuck off, and everyone can either believe it or they cannot believe it. I don't give two fucks, but I am telling you right now, that that motherfucker back there is not real. Okay. I wish I would have been on this plane. You know who's on the plane? Apparently it was Carrot Top. You know, the comedian from Vegas? <laughs> maybe there's, maybe she's talking about him. <laughs> but uh, so that's the video. We've all seen it. It took place months ago. 
And then there was this like, who is this woman and where is she? And the government's hiding her and all these conspiracies come out. And then we have this very, and, and so the, the woman you're looking at on the airplane has her hair up in a thing. And she looks like all of us traveling, comfortable, having her thing. And then she just flips out and gets off the plane. Then uh, Tiffany Gomez is her name. She opens up a Twitter account and this, and we're not going to play the whole thing because it's kind of long. Should we maybe play the whole, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So this is her, um, her response to the crazy plane lady video. And you have to, it doesn't even look like the same woman. She looks like she just got out of a makeup salon. Like she's all done up and you know, uh, the hair, the lipstick, I don't know what the names of all the different kinds of things she's using, but here's the video of her. And this was from August 13th. Hi everyone. It's me. Tiffany Gomez, probably better known as the crazy plane lady, which is completely warranted. As you know, I have been unwilling to speak on the viral video, but I do finally feel that it's time. First and foremost, I want to take full accountability for my actions. They were completely unacceptable. Distressed or not, I should have been, I should have been in control of my emotions and that was not the case. My use of profanity was completely unnecessary and I want to apologize to everyone on that plane, especially those that had children aboard. Can't imagine going through that and trying to explain to your kid what in the world just happened. We all have our bad moments, um, some far worse than others, and mine happened to be caught on camera for the whole world to see multiple times. Sorry, trying not to sound like Minnie Mouse. Um, okay, I'm gonna stop and you get the gist. So that's basically, yeah. that's her video. Um, 24.4 million views so far, and before I have a, a whole bunch of thoughts about this. Some of them, I feel sorry for this individual. No one, they, there's this saying every day, there's a main character on the internet and you don't want to be it. And she has been that main character for, uh, for, for a bit of time. So from a reputation management standpoint, what do you think we're looking at here with this video? <laughs> well, I wish I had kind of really knew, but um, I'd be curious to your thoughts, but it looked to me like someone who's trying to convert their 15 minutes of fame into, into something more like a, a cash grab. Yeah. Yeah. Like how can I turn this into, you know, um, um, guest appearance on the next big brother or something influencer. And yeah. not that there's anything wrong with that. We're in a capitalist society. Hey, if you want to, and there are a lot of people making their livings, on Instagram, TikTok, whatever. So not to take away from that. But the thing that I found weird about it is you go to the trouble of creating this video. She's obviously very highly kind of done up and it's, a, it's everything is, is, is uh, curated and kind of airbrushed in this perfect kind of image. And at no point does she talk about the actual thing, like the elephant in the room. Like, was that, yeah. was that mother effort real? Like what who, happened? <laughs> who are you talking about? What's the situation? Um, and if you don't, and you know, maybe it's, you know, to be again, empathetic, maybe it's a, a mental health issue. Maybe it was just, uh, she took the wrong, um, medication as she was getting on the plane to calm her nerves. Like, I'd love to know 
what the source of this was, what, what was the issue? Because we go through this whole thing and she acknowledges and apologizes and everything else, but doesn't actually talk about it. And so in a way, I don't, I'm, I'm wondering if that was done on purpose just to kind of keep the suspense up. And, and mm. we've seen over the past couple of weeks that people are actually, um, if you're getting, I think over 5 million views on your tweets over a certain amount of time, like per month, you're getting those, those payouts from Twitter. And so she's going to be getting a handy check from this. And, and again, not to take anything away from her, but I just think like if this is an acknowledgement slash apology, I don't really it something doesn't feel right about it. Well, who, who does that? Like how many people have been caught on social some social media clip, and then they you know take a break to go create uh, you know uh, a website, um, reserve your <laughs> domain name, and you know curate your apology video, highly scripted. I don't know. See, maybe I'm being overly critical, but. It seemed like she had obviously practiced that a whole well, bunch it's been, of times. It's been it done wasn't... before. It's been done before. But like, I wonder yeah. what what what's the end game here, right? And I just look. It just it's in this world that like there's a lot of this kind of stuff going on. It just seems kind of like weird and kind of kind of very fake. contrived. Well, very and, contrived. and and uh, there were a couple points in the video where, and I'm, again, I'm trying to be empathetic with this, but like there were a few because you know we know how the sausage is made, right? In these. In, in PR and social media and all the stuff. And so during the video, there's a couple times where she has to collect herself. Like, oh, I'm sorry. And she kind of almost starts crying and then keeps going. Well, if you didn't want to, see, if you didn't want people to see you crying, tape it again, like do it a second time, do it a third time, do it a ninth. And again, I don't know her motivations. I don't know this individual, but like, it makes me think then the, that the almost crying was part of what you wanted to have come out. Yeah. Right. Because it's yeah. not like it was, it was one shot or was live. It was it was a a video that was done kind of intentionally with two little moments where she almost started to cry and put that out. So I feel like that's I feel like I'm kind of getting played as a as a viewer here a little bit. I would say so, yeah. And I just still want to know was that was that mother effort real? <laughs> maybe maybe she has uh, already has the um, the the sponsorship lined up, and we'll see her. Guaranteed, she's going to turn this something. into a million dollar consulting influencer practice. Guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to see her at halftime at the Super Bowl or I don't know. We're going to see her somewhere. I just I hope I don't see her on an airplane. That's all I hope. <laughs> Another one we had listed here. I don't know if there's a lot to talk about, but it's the um, there were two high profile people had had a bad week. Scooter Braun is one of them, sort of the musical agent to the stars. He's the guy who kind of discovered Justin Bieber and he represented you know Demi Lovato and Ariana Grande and a whole bunch of different artists. And um, Taylor Swift, I guess, was um, among that group. And anyone who knows the backstory, like he um, bought her catalog of music and then sold it to someone else, kind of flipped it. And she was super um, angry with that and re-recorded her new songs. Anyway, it seems that all of his artists, the rumors anyway, are that they're all kind of ditching him and leaving him all in a row. Like they're all just kind of scattering. And there's rumors that he's being investigated by different agencies or whatever for for some stuff. So, and then we have the guy... um, the Russian uh, guy from the Wagner group or whatever, whose airplane went down yesterday and allegedly who knows what's real, but apparently he was in, in the airplane and dead. And the only thing that, I, that connects those two stories is be careful who you cross in the business. world. <laughs> <laughs> Scooter Braun, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift. And it's going to be your baggage. If you, that's right. <laughs> so don't cross Taylor Swift or Vladimir Putin uh, because, and re- revenge is best served. Hold. So, and and not to make light of this, but it just uh, it's uh, interesting to kind of see those stories take place. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, have you ever read The Art of War? You know that book, the 2000 year old book. Any thoughts? Do you like it? Years ago, years ago, I flipped through it. I don't know. It's, I'm I, sure there's some some relevant uh, things you could drop from it. I saw some guy on LinkedIn today say, you know, the six worst business books in the, the world. And he's like, The Art of War is number one. And I'm like, eh, I thought that was actually, I thought it was actually like, and maybe I'm just old, but I thought it was actually a pretty good book. If you like, there was a lot of things in there that are kind of like keep your competition on their toes, do the unexpected when you're weak, yeah. be strong, like all that. Like, so I don't know. But I think he's a guy who works for another company, doesn't have his own business. So I guess you can make fun of the book if it doesn't apply to you. I don't know. I guess so. Okay. So last thing we have on the docket today is more of a general media relations um, observation. And I, I had sent out a, a post on LinkedIn the other day and let me actually pull it up because I want to make you, sure you should, you should pull it up and read it. And, and cause you did a great poll. That was really interesting. Um, I thought, I thought the results were particularly interesting too. Uh, because when you first put it up, I thought, Hmm, <laughs> I wonder if this is going to come out the way I expect it's going to come out. Uh, okay. Can you talk a little bit more while I pull it up? Yeah. So, um, and this is often this idea of like fairness and journalism comes up quite, quite often I find anyway. Um, and there is a predisposition to, to this idea. I think people have a, a predisposition to think that journalists um, uh, are out to catch them somehow. Um, but oftentimes when you talk to journalists, the, the idea that there's anyone out there trying to do that is sort of unthinkable. And in many, in, in, as in many cases, okay, I'm going to totally mix metaphors here. The eyes, Sometimes, sometimes it depends on what perspective you're you're coming from, and sometimes um, uh, you know it's one of these things where it, it dep- on what side of the table you're on, it, it will it'll look the same. It's the same um, example will look different. Can you give an example of what you mean by that? Well, sometimes you, you'll get a journalist asking sort of a really sort of probing, critical question, and if I'm on the spokesperson side of the table, I may be thinking, oh, fuck, that, I, that's, he's out to get me. Um, but the journalist is really maybe just trying to get to the, what they think is maybe there's a, another layer of the onion below, below what's, what's visible, and they're trying to like get that new thing. And from a journalist standpoint, well, that's what kind of what their job is. And from a spokesman standpoint, it's like, well, your job is to present the, you know, uh, your, your organization's position and uh, sometimes that means you have to sort of, you know, put shields up and be prepared for tough questions yeah. and manage them effectively. Um, and like I said, just a, it's the same thing. It just depending on where, what perspective you come from, it, it looks a little different. And I would say in that situation, that that reporter is not out to get the person, right? If no. you look at it objectively, but the point yeah. of it, and I found the post, so here it is. Uh, I sent this out a week ago. The vast majority of journalists are not out to get you. However, a small percentage of journalists are definitely out to get you. Can you, as the spokesperson, tell the difference when you're in the middle of your interview? Not necessarily. So tip number one, rely on your communications and media relations people. They have a hard-earned spider sense about how these interactions can and can help you prepare and navigate any media interview. They can smell potential traps, malicious reporters, or unethical situations and advise you accordingly. Never speak to the media without your communications team. I think we, we both say that to all of our clients. Tip number two, put yourself through a great media training session. Learn the tricks of the trade. Understand the difference between a media interview and a conversation. Practice your messages. Do repetitions. Do tough interviews. Get feedback. Make adjustments. 
And I ended up saying, basically, if you ignore these tips, you're essentially rolling the dice with your media interviews. And that was apparently, uh, of the many, many thousands of posts that I've put out, that was apparently controversial to some people who took offense to it. You know, it's awful to see a media trainer paint journalists in this terrible light and other people saying that um, no, no journalist is ever out to get you. That was another comment. And another one was, um, I can't believe that you would both paint journalists in a negative light and use that as a marketing opportunity to promote your business. And so <laughs> I have some thoughts about all of those, but for anyone who's been working and then, and then, so as a result of that, <laughs> someone said, you know, where's the, where's the stats? Where's the data? Where, what are you basing this on? So I'm basing it on 30 years of doing it. And, and, and I, and I said like, look, the first line is most of them are not out to get you. They're out to tell stories. It's a tough job. It's a terrible job. We've both worked in that. I think you've worked as a journalist in different regards. And then, so I put out a poll, quick question for PR and communications folks as a public relations or communications expert, have you ever had an interaction with a journalist who was unprofessional or unfair with you or a client? And got 104 votes on LinkedIn and 73% of people said yes. 27% of people said no. thought that was great. And I did a similar yeah. one on Twitter and the results were similar, like 80-20 in that range. And so I'm, I'm wondering what what's the part of that that is offensive to people? Like if you've worked for any amount of time in media relations, you're going to find someone and it, it's not, it has nothing to do with journalism. I have a huge, huge spot in my in my heart and in my and just my soul for, for the work of journalists. I have family members who are journalists. I've, I've done, I've worked on thousands of stories myself. I know that the, the, the profession is literally on fire these days and it's harder to do it than ever before. And one of the main things you're worried about is getting fired. Like the people at, at Bell who got dropped a couple months ago. But to say that every single journalist is ethical and above board is, is bullshit. Like any profession, mechanics, lawyers, bakers, cops, flight attendants, nurses, fast food workers, like every profession has bad apples or people who shouldn't be there. And hopefully they get pushed out, right? They get pushed out, whether it's from their boss or there's the critiques that are made. But the point, the point of the post is that if you as a spokesperson and you haven't done a lot of interviews and you're kind of nervous about it and you're trying to get prepared and you're in the middle of the interview and it's happening, you don't necessarily know what the reporter's motivations are. Assuming like, and the analogy I use is like, have you ever been out to uh, Banff National Park in Alberta in no. that area? Stunning area. I encourage everyone to go there at least once in your life. But like, there's like grizzly bears walking around, right? So you can go <laughs> out. Now, I love I love walking and I love hiking, but I don't love getting eaten by a bear. And so I, this, uh, this analogy may not work, but I'm going to give it a shot. If someone said, I'm going to go out for a walk around the hotel out in Banff, and, um, I'm just, I'll be back in an hour. I'm like, are you going to get eaten by a bear? Probably not. But wouldn't it be a good idea to maybe have a little jingly bell on your belt and a can of bear spray? Wouldn't that be just a good idea just in case? Cause I don't know if the bear's there or if the bear is hungry or if the bear is angry, or maybe I've looked at the bear the wrong way. And again, 99%, you're going to be fine. 1%, I'd like to have some bear spray. You're laughing. What are you laughing? <laughs> I think this <laughs> I is laugh. Keep going. Keep I going. think this is a good analogy. And so yes. if, cause I, I often tell people like, you don't know what the journalist is thinking until you see the story. And so I would like to just have, get some training. Right. And I wasn't saying I didn't have a link to my site, didn't promote myself. I'm, I'm one person. There are a lot of people who I would consider to be really capable media trainers. I, I can think of probably about 14, 15 people just in Canada 
you're one of them, right? And there's a whole list of people that I'm just saying, get great media training from someone or read a book or do a course. Like you can't go in to an interview without having some kind of background, some kind of context, having those skills kind of built up. That's the equivalent of the bear spray in the situation. Yeah. And the vast majority of situations you're going to get into, they're just trying to tell stories, do their job, inform their audiences. But every now and then, and especially more today, I think, because there are fewer editors and fewer producers who I think we've, we've lost a lot of quality people at the top of journalism. And so you're seeing a lot of things, first drafts, you're seeing stuff get through, you're seeing more typos come out. And again, I, I feel I feel terrible for this, but the onus is on the spokesperson to prepare as opposed to relying on the journalist to just be nice to them. That's all I was trying to say. So that's a whole, 100%, whole 100%. lot of work. Well, I, I go even one step further because there's a whole category of media now that um, especially like digital online sort of post-driven media um, where, and, and I see it frequently where they are intentionally using highly torqued biased and um, you know, sort of in, it, 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 language that is as triggering as possible. Like clickbait. So it, it exactly generates clicks. So it is it is a feature, not a bug, right? Mm. So I and whether you okay, maybe you can debate whether those people are actually journalists or not. Like maybe they're not journalists. Maybe they're something else. Um, but um, but it is absolutely uh, something that is part and part part and parcel of the communications ecosystem now. Even if you just look at um, traditional media, like these are human beings, and whether it, you definitely see it in political coverage, you know people have, mm. you know, sort of biases and everything. And as much as they say, you know, we try and you know sort of you know be impartial, like it is impossible for all of us to be impartial. Like we have we have ways that we we see yeah. things differently. And then I also think in business it shows up because people have strong opinions about companies right like if i'm a if i'm a journalist and i'm writing about bell and i know they've been routinely laying off you know many of my my industry co-workers and colleagues and friends well do i automatically just shut that out whenever i'm writing about mm -hmm. their media business no it's going to be part, part and parcel of it so it's 100 percent something that uh is out there and i agree with you um it is um you know, being prepared is your first and best defense um, to, to try and get accurate and balanced coverage uh, because there aren't a lot of other levers beyond that to try and remedy um, something that, you know, is written that is just like, yeah, sometimes you can get errors corrected, but hmm. oftentimes the things that are unfair are not errors of fact. Um, they're sort of that gray zone between uh, demonstrable facts and characterizations of things. And, you know, you can debate all day and editors are off are, are very loath to change things once they're, mm. once they're out there. And, and some of those, the out to get you piece is, and that, that might be maybe a, a strong way to put it, but like you can have a 28 minute interview with a journalist and you can say one like they can ask you a volatile question with some specific, like how much of a nightmare was that? We always talk about these examples using negative words and you respond, you refute it, but use those negative words and then using that quote, like, is that, is that a bit of a dirty trick or is it kind of just putting words in your mouth? 
And again, not blaming the journalist. It's an interesting way to ask questions. I've done this myself, right? It's, you, it, part of the game, right? It's, it's part it's of the just, game. You just you need yeah. to have your bear spray. Just I'm, all I'm saying is get get trained yeah. by someone who knows what they're doing. And uh, and that was basically the gist of that. And like, but for anyone, if you've worked in media relations for more than ten years and you haven't dealt with a reporter who's a little bit offside or a little bit unethical, you're living in a cotton candy house. Like it just, I just that doesn't doesn't. Or maybe you're the luckiest PR person in the world. Maybe you just deal with like super happy topics and that's amazing. We deal with a lot of, uh, you know, ugly situations and crisis kind of stuff. Um, but if you, if you, if you can work through your media relations career and every single reporter that you work with is hundred percent above board and ethical and well-meaning, then congratulations. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, but <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing so much. Uh, that's I, all. I, laughed, I was laughing because I, I like the the bell analogy because I was thinking in my mind, ah, the bell is so they can find the bear that's eaten you after you've <laughs> gone over your walk. But um, bum. All right. Anything else for this one, or should we? Uh... <laughs> no, that was a good, 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 good talk. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, we will try to uh, have another one of these in the can next week. But uh, thanks once again. If there's anything or any story that you like us to to chop up or anything. Or if you're in the PR world or if you're a journalist and you want to talk about some of these issues, you want to be a guest on the show, send us a note or send us a DM on Twitter because we'd love to get some other voices in here to chat about it. Anyway, thanks again, everybody, and we will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.